What do you love to do? Can you remember the last time you had a hobby that didn't involve an ulterior motive? That didn't involve money or hustle culture and that made you feel maybe a little bit vulnerable and afraid to be judged? I want to hear about that story. We all have something that gives us passion and it's my goal to re-inspire you to find the joy in your life by talking with other people about the things that make them happiest. I'm Megan Bream. This is Anything But Beige. Let's go. Hey guys, Megan here. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? I bet it sucked really badly, right? Did it take a while to get out of? And maybe have you ever gotten out of it? Or have you just kind of let it seep into all of the things in your life? Wow, this sounds like the beginning of a horror movie or something, doesn't it? I don't mean it that way. This episode is actually about the complete opposite of that. It's about getting out of negative thinking and finding a better path. And I brought on the most inspiring guy. His name is Lee Chambers, and he is a coach that helps people change their mindsets. He went from being a pro like bodybuilder, swole dude, to losing the ability to walk and having to find a new journey and a new path. And just the mindset shifts that he's had to do to overcome this and become a better person on the outside and learning to walk again, all of these things. Like it's just so inspiring and I love his message and I hope you love it too. His journey's incredible. Please check him out. He's so cool. He's such a cool dude to talk to. And I think you're going to love him because I love him. Here's my interview with Lee Chambers, all about overcoming negative thinking. I'm Lee Chambers and I love to optimize people, work with statistics, and empower them to become better in the health and the happiness. So, where are you based exactly? Uh, so, I'm based in Preston in England, which is north of Manchester and quite close to the Atlantic. So, for people imagining not far from Liverpool. Are you from there originally? Um, I'm from this area, so yes. I grew up a little bit closer to the centre and gradually moved closer to the city. What's the weather like? Um, it's not great. Really? We, live, we live about 40 miles from the coast, but where we live, it's a valley. So all the weather blows over the Atlantic and lands in the valley. So here is one of the wettest places in Europe. <laughs> so this is like... Um, do you get a lot of humidity because it's so wet, or is it just cold and soggy? Um, to be honest, it's quite often cold and soggy. And with a place where that's got reservoirs that store water for the rest of England, because it rains so much, we always fill up again. Understood. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, you reach out to me, and the reason I was so intrigued about story is you have you're a renaissance man i mean you have been a team developer you've been a lead athlete coach you're i just um and i almost don't know where to start to ask you about your stories of 
where would you want to start? Where Where do you love telling people? How do you love telling your story? Uh, so in so many ways, it's always great to start at the beginning. <laughs> so for me, I, I grew up in England. Both my parents were blue collar workers, very hard working, and I never went hungry. I always had a roof over my head. And in so many ways, that gave me a blueprint that if you work hard, then you will be relatively secure. And yeah, as I started to get a bit older, I kind of felt that my parents weren't around as much because they were always working. And I started to think if I could possibly find a way to have more control of my own life and start to design it for me, then when I started a family, I'd have more time with my own children. And that's quite a strange thought to have when you're quite young. And yet, for me, it was really important because my parents had identified that I appeared to be quite able at school um, and they really wanted me to be the first person in the whole extended family to go to university. So they very much pushed me in that direction, told me to you know, be strong academically and to try and you know, set an example for the future generations of our family that you can be successful in education and push forward and make a career of your own choosing. Um, so I was always a very inquisitive child, very curious, uh, which meant that on one hand I was well behaved and on the other hand I was very disruptive. Um, I was always looking at quite a wide range. So I've got a very, I would describe it as an in interconnected mindset. So I struggle looking at things in isolation I really excel in looking at things as a connected web in a bigger picture. So that kind of took me through my studies, took me to college and then took me to university, but I never wanted to pick one thing and become one thing. So I went to university, did international business psychology. So that allowed me to do geopolitics, to do history of democratic nations. I was able to do elements of business, elements of psychology, language and communication. So for me, that was great. I could do yeah. all yeah. <laughs> um, And that kind of now tailed into me today as I then came out of university into finance and wanted to help people with the well-being. So I kind of identified that two things that I really liked, statistics, helping people. Put them together, financial advising was great. Yet this was 2007. So after six months, I suddenly found my qualifications lost the funding, and then I was made redundant a few weeks afterwards. So that really started me on the path of, okay, so I'm almost going to go out on a mission to find what I want to do. And I'm not going to be able to do that by sitting here and thinking. I'm going to shape my purpose and shape my mission by doing lots of different things. So that led me on a journey. I set up a video game company. I went working in local government, I then went working in charity, I then went working in elite sport, and I was starting to shape an overall view, gradually chisel my character of who I was going to become, where I could bring more value to the world. And then all of a sudden, I became unwell, lost the ability to walk for illness, and that stopped me in my track, gave me a lot of time to reflect and look back and start to knit together what I really wanted to do. And through my recovery, and through the qualifications that I've done prior to being unwell and afterwards, I've managed to forge a path and an understanding that my talents are 
best used in power over people to look at their own health behaviours, to look at organisational cultures and how that fuels or stifles people's development, people's responsibility and ownership. New engagement in life and also looking at how I can help individuals who've gone through similar challenges to really start to look at ways they can improve their own health, take ownership and start to develop their own path, their own journey to go on, and their own missions to really at the end of their life feel that they've achieved what they set out to do. So I have myriad questions, but uh, the thing that stuck out to me was um, you were talking about organizational cultures and how that affects the communities. I wonder if you talk more about that because I'm kind of intrigued on what that means and how my first thought is I think we can prevent it from affecting that, but do you know what I mean? Like how how can we utilize organizational culture and is that in a way that it's not Yeah, so okay. something, I guess. So I kind of mean at a base level, someone's well being in the workplace actually starts with the organisational culture. So we tend to see wellbeing as something that can come in externally to teach our employees how to live a better life. And it's also seen as something that you can bring in or create. So we bring in a fruit bowl and some yoga classes and build a slide in the middle of the office. And truth be told, they can be effective in certain scenarios, but if you've got a poor organisational culture, even a toxic organisational culture, suddenly people are not going to want to throw themselves down the side because I'm not having fun at work. I'm not going to eat the fruit because I don't like the fruit. I would use the vending machine. And the lesser engaged people are not going to engage in whatever you bring in. So really, it's hard. Well-being in the workplace starts two very simple principles that employees have a level of autonomy which lets them step towards the potential grow and develop into the role and into themselves within the workplace secondly simple act of appreciation for your work so in so many ways that foundation of workplace well-being that people have the space to grow and that they are given some element of praise for the things that they do well and feedback that's given that is constructive, that is positive, but that identifies that we can grow. So that feedback might not always be something that's gone right. It might be helping people with things that have gone wrong. And yet if they feel like they have the space to grow, then they can construe that feedback if communicated well as a chance to fill into that gap. If that gap's not there, the feedback will feel restrictive. So that, in so many ways, is the foundation. But then on top of that, leadership and a business has to be purposeful, has to have values. And those values and that consciousness within the leadership has to be transmuted down to the employees. They need to actually be part of defining what the company's mission and vision is because every organisation is a vehicle to achieve something in the world hopefully something positive in so many ways an organisation is a bit like a school bus 
and leadership are driving the vote. The employees are sat on. They want to know that it's going to reach a certain destination. They also want to feel that the person in control of the vehicle is conscious, <laughs> is well, is not about to fall asleep. I'm not sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and in so many ways, that conscious leadership starts to understand that business has a lot of different stakeholders, has society to consider in its decisions, partners and collaborators to consider, investors to consider, customers and clients to consider, and importantly, employees to consider as a stakeholder for all decisions that are made. And when that purpose is congruent, so it's not just some values on a wall or a convoluted mission statement, it's something that employees have participated in deciding what that means to them and what that means for the company, so that that communication is congruent and leadership actually lives and decides through that lens. When you get to that point, people are on the bus, they know where it's going, have faith in the driver, and they feel that the journey and the highway is going to be relatively safe, because there's always dangers out on the highway, and yet you want to feel that focus of where you're going is not going to lead to the winds blowing your buzz from side to side. You want to know that it's going to continue solidly on its path. And that really forms the basis for workplace well-being. Now, if you have that culture where people feel valued, where there's a level of inclusivity that gives people the chance to access the good parts of working, the engagement with teams and collaboration with the people that they work with, if they feel that they can possibly experiment, step outside of what they do, do a little bit more without the fear of failing, being blamed, being pulled back constantly. And this is quite a challenging principle. It does require some elements of leadership and management that go against what traditional workplace cultures have often been. And yet, in so many ways, as I've navigated this world, there is no such thing as a bad team of employees, just bad managers. And I've comically, in an experiment six months ago, had a manager, two managers change teams. Both worked in the same department and both had a team of six employees. One particular team had performed on their KPIs, outperformed the other team on every single one for six consecutive months. I, the leader said to me, I don't know how to solve this. I just feel that they're a bad team, that they're not as capable. And I said, let me speak to the managers. I spoke to the managers. Manager A, the team that performed, he said, they are, they are competent. I've tried to let them get on with it. I've tried to give them more responsibility and delegate more to them. When they've come to me and asked how to do it, I've in some ways, reflected and asked them, would you do it this way? Or, what do you think? Speak to the other manager. He says, he's got a better team than I am. I just, I, I just tell them what to do and they keep coming asking me. So, what the leader said, switch the managers. See what happens next time. That's fascinating. And that's, 
you know, I'm sure that everyone listening has been able to put themselves in that situation of just you know, uh, hopelessness, I guess, in a way. And, you know, I have been in toxic love cultures, I'm sure you have, and I'm sure everyone. You know? So, uh, you, you bring up a really interesting point of not the cliche, but like the buck stops at the minute, right? And just the, the level of autonomy that people can have. And how do you recommend someone who is in this kind of micromanaged, toxic work environment? How can you empower yourself and how can you take care of your own well-being so that you don't just rage quit one day? Because, <laughs> you know, it, in this world of COVID and sessions and economic craziness and like I know a lot of people are hanging my grass on a ship to whatever instability they can have but you know as a big world being coach that these are tough times for mental health and for self-care so when you see someone in these kind of situations and it's sort of like a they don't have the ability Jobs or entrepreneurs, or even if they are entrepreneurs and they just have a really bad, like, how do you, what are your suggestions for mindset shifts? Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, for a lot of people, obviously, it's slightly warming to know that there's people like me trying to make changes, and yet in their situation, they don't have the autonomy, and the current situation is very difficult because those external factors things that very little control over so a lot of the work i do with individuals in these challenging situations is to really start to look at it's easy to start to fall away from responsibility and ownership ourselves when so much has been taken out of us in a work scenario and a real big part of what i do within organizations is once we get that culture productive, people's responsibility, ownership, and adoption of health behaviours increases because they've been empowered at work. So my effective tactic with people who don't have that level of control is to start to look at how we can take more ownership of our own self-care, how we can start to utilise the areas we can control and for a lot of people, it's not during the workday, unfortunately, because, again, they need a position that gives them the financial well-being to live stably. So we start to look at the AM, the PM. What can we do in the early mornings? What can we do in the later evenings? There's that appreciation there that if work is taking it out of you, it's challenging to then push forward and yet, at the start of your day and at the end of the day you have that bit of freedom start to build in practices which can start to bolster your well-being through these challenging times but help you start to develop and build something which will allow you to scale away from the current scenario that you're in so we are looking at in the morning see you can meditate see if early on and obviously it's not an option for everyone everyone has different environmental circumstances and yet the power in the morning of spending time with yourself rather than jumping straight into other people's worlds 
So a big part of that is not dumping straight into your mobile phone as soon as you wake up. Because as soon as you do that, you will either fall into the news, into social media, or into your emails, which are all other people's agendas. And more often than not, are a negative because we are we do have that negative bias as humans. Negativity sticks to our brain like Velcro. Positivity slips off like Teflon. <laughs> and it's real. <laughs> wired. I mean, so many ways, you know, caveman walked out, get a tiger on one side and a beautiful flower on the other. And any of them that went, oh, nice flower got eaten. And that's why we're, <laughs> we're now here today because we survived because we started running and ignored the flower. Um, but yeah, that ability to then actually do something. So some people might be meditation, some people might be silence, some people prayer, some people yoga, but some practice which allows you to be with yourself first thing in the morning, allows you to reflect on you, where you want to go, who you want to become. It makes us more hopeful because again, in a, in a scenario where Managers who inspire hope have engaged employees. 69% of employees are engaged if the manager inspires hope. If the manager doesn't inspire hope in the employees, 1% are engaged. Which is it's amazing. That is the reality. That's how much it matters that managers inspire hope in people. So, again, you've got that practice in the morning and maybe then you can start to build small things into that reflection. Maybe you can start to journal. Maybe you can start to look at reading page day maybe. Maybe a little bit of exercise to get yourself cognitively prepared for the day. Give you that bit more headspace. Maybe for you it might be something a little bit more creative. Maybe a little bit of drawing or colouring just at the start. But these mindful activities anchor us into ourselves having that internal focus means that our day start with positivity which really gives us an inbuilt emotional resilience for the challenges that may come for the day that we then face. What's also important is that that puts us in a positive state, positive first few steps and that can really colour our day so even when those challenges come at work we can reframe them a little bit more positively. What's also important is that we then look to take that forward into the evening as well. Because when it comes to self-care, sleep is the fundamental driver of performance and of health. And what our sleep does, it affects every biological process. And it's incredibly important to our emotional regulation and our hormonal regulation. So if we can, in our PM, start to find ways to build our routine to promote better sleep and start experimenting with our own sleep environment, our own biorhythms to see how we can make sleep work for us. But that PM routine again might include journaling your mind so you've got a clearer mind, finding things that just reduce anxiety before that time. We as a species now get so many inputs and so much stimulation throughout a day very hard to switch off and finding ways to remove that start to tune that down obviously we're not designed to have light in the evening it was only 200 years ago that we suddenly had light bulbs 
before that, people were sleeping 10 hours a night. Now, the average Western adult sleeps 6.7. We've not physiologically changed at all in that time. And yet, our sleep has been cut by a third. And that has its own issues around trying to protect ourselves, our well-being. Because our emotional regulation, when we don't sleep well, we see more negative. We swing very quickly between negative and positive. Our hormonal regulation is affected. It means that we make, more, we make poorer food choices, which then cause our blood sugar to spike and drop and then make us feel more groggy, more brain fog. We can't focus our attention on things we need to do. Our concentration is affected. It becomes a massive knock-on effect that gradually puts us on a negative spiral. If that's then combined with a toxic workplace environment, it really starts to become even more challenging. So really, it's about us utilising the things that we can control, the things that we can do to build our emotional resilience, to build our own mindset, to build the ability to feel more anchored within ourselves, more defined in who we are, and start to see the things that come our way as challenges, not as threats, as opportunities to grow and to become something more and to start to express our authentic selves. And that really can ignite and enlighten people, even in the most difficult workplace circumstances. Sorry, I was on mute because me shutting the bit it started to move a lot across the street. <laughs> And there were songbirds and everything was <laughs> just I, I got a comment that one thing I love is the passion that I see that you have for this and just you know um for those who are listening and not watching it's like you're not going on notes or anything and you're just going and I love that. I love seeing how impassioned you are about this and you know, I came from the era of what I call hustle culture, of just, you know, faster, more, no self-care, no thing for that. And so, to, it's, for me, it's been very hard to get out of that and to start seeing steps to self-care or creating hobbies or creating time for myself is not a sunk cost. Or, you know, it, it's not a, a negative because it's not I think that a lot of people, even especially our age, have not, I don't know if it's consciously gone away from giving time for ourselves, but just I think that a lot of us have had to make concerted efforts to give what mental health and well-being priority. And I think it's a really hard cycle to one break and get into. So, um, you know, you were saying just take some time in the morning or evening before you And um, how do you recommend, like, one thing that worked for me really well was sort of like a delayed gratification of, uh, you know, I can, go, I can go on Reddit, but I have to, you know, I have to do my meditation first or like, I can 
watch. I can do something that I wanted to do already, but first I'm going to, like, it's a reward for my self-care. Does that make sense? Yeah. And do you, do you suggest that for your clients, or do you, is there another way that, how do you start to make it uh, a, mind, a mindset shift to caring for yourself again? And uh, how do you? So how do you create that cycle? But also, I want to hear your story of uh, when you lost your ability to walk, how did you, I'm sure that that affected your mindset very much. And so how did you start to say, I'm not, this is not me. I am going to, I am going to give myself the permission to overcome this and to not, you know, like, so that's a, very wide system of a question, but I hope, that, yeah. uh, I hope it makes sense. Yeah, so let, let's go into the uh, into the elements first. So, for people of our generation, we were brought up into that free market economy where things start to become bigger as GDP grow, and we then grew up into the kind of media technological revolution we started to see that you know these careers brought this much therefore you could buy this therefore you would then have this life and we again have grown up and as you grow up you start to be implanted with beliefs you start society and the people around you start to rub off on you in so many ways we all have this little backpack of beliefs and thoughts and feelings that gradually build up as, as we grow up and we are in that generation where it's very statistic, very figures, return on investment for money, but working hard for money, very tangible. Self-care to incrementally get yourself to a better place, both health-wise and mind-wise, doesn't really share the same visual, tangible element. It makes it a little bit more challenging Again, so many elements of self-care when we were younger were considered woo-woo, spiritual, out there, you know, what, what, in some ways, maybe what women do. And men find it harder to connect. It's, I think it's funny that I never heard woo-woo, that term, until I started looking into, you know, your ye or like the like hustling and things like that. I never heard of woo-woo. And then it became this negative connotation and this negative, which is so silly because all what I see woo-woo is is just sort of like I think something you love and just running with it. And maybe it's monetary, but it's, you know, yeah. And obviously we have this, we have this lovely place now where woo-woo is starting to be diminished, mm-hmm. which is good because people need to experiment with what works for them. What's woo-woo for one person is bliss for another. What's hustle for one person is absolute agony for another. You need to find where you are on that spectrum, but you need to, in some ways, also realise that too much hustle or too much woo-woo is toxic. Like anything, anything in excess is toxic, including everything that we need to live. So... It's kind of understanding that integrated balance of things, but kind of got into with my clients to make these small incremental changes 
to things to get us in a better place. Really important that there is some element of reward for what we do. Also, we look at ways that we make it more desirable. Because again, sometimes these things we feel like we're taking away from our life, taking away from our capacity. But it's important that we articulate just how beneficial these things are. Start to make them more desirable by looking and realising that while we don't have an instant enlightenment once we've meditated once, if we are consistent, we start to see the benefits of being able to shift our attention and keep our attention more easy, we'll find it easy to switch off and we need to rest. And suddenly these we start to actually see make it more desirable by seeing what changes are possibly going to happen and also starting to realise it's not going to happen straight away have that more beginner's mindset where, like anything, you didn't jump on the bike and ride it, you garnered the benefits through practice and starting to bring back that as humans, you don't really get anything instantly. What we get instantly quite often becomes problematic, it doesn't give us the space to practice and we suddenly expect to become experts at things overnight. And we are incredibly neuroplastic and have incredible potential that everything takes a bit of time. We also look to make it visible. So if you want to do yoga, make sure your mat is in a high traffic area. You see it triggered, you be cued to go and do it. And finally, make it easy. Don't start thinking you can meditate for two hours a day. Truth is, you can, but it's not going to stay consistent. You actually start with something that's tiny, something that you can't simply excuse yourself not to do it. Meditate for a minute. You know what? People almost laugh when I suggest that. Start with a minute. I can do 20. I can definitely do oh, Because it starts to build a habit, and it's very difficult to self talk ourselves out of doing things that are really, really easy. It's very much easier to take a decision against something that's going to be off the start to take a bit of time away from something else in value. So all practices where we do, you know, exercising, sometimes we start by putting your exercise on. That primes you, someone who exercises all the time, suddenly find yourself off exercising without even thinking about it. And we've got to use the fact that we are very, we are very strong privileged as human beings take advantage of those or we can let them take advantage of us. So kind of extrapolating to my own experience with losing the ability to walk. I he was a real very difficult time, just then twenty nine. In so many ways my life was stable, acceptable, my son was eighteen months old, my wife was six months pregnant, and I was thinking about what we're gonna do before my daughter's born and before I'm thirty and I have to be sensible. Um, and all of a sudden, over the course of a week, my immune system started to attack the connective tissue in my joints, locking both my knees in place, and then my wrist and my shoulder as well. So I ended up in a hospital bed, a lot of pain, being tested to try and find out what had happened. And at first, I was in shock. It all suddenly gone, my independence, my mobility. I was not able to even do the basic things for myself, such as shower feed myself and obviously you don't really feel anything at first because it's gone. 
learn from the challenges around my own mental health when I was at university and my redundancy. I have to let the eggs in the washing So after the shock and the despair, I was 29. I was getting healthy. Why me? Fair. Then came the grief. Not sure what's going to happen. I'm a young man. I identify with a level of athleticism, a level of physicality. I'm not sure what's going to happen with my ability. But I feel quite, oh, quite losing that at the minute. And let them pass. In the second week, you get a lot of time to reflect when you're in the hospital bed and you can't really move anywhere. And it just dawned on me one afternoon and the thought just flew into my head and that mindset shifted all this on. And that thought was really simple. I've not been grateful for walking in 29 years. Not once have I ever said I'm grateful that I can walk. And that just really sat in my mind and then just floated down to my heart in so many ways and that really expanded then because I was like people come in here to the hospital to shower me, help me eat, help me do basic things. I've been grateful enough for them. They're now here in care of me and truth be told not been as grateful for them as I should have been and it went even further and I began to realise I was born in the UK. I always had a roof over my head. I've always had food on my table. I've had free education, freedom to set up a business, free healthcare, the opportunity to work in a number of different industries. And I've not been grateful. I could be an orphan on the other side of the world with no medical facilities, without any of these opportunities. Why should I lie here and feel sorry for myself? Why should I lie here and expect the world to fix me? And at that point, really, I catalyzed the fact that I'm going to take ownership of my recovery. This has happened, and I'll have control of this disease for the rest of my life. Yet, my health outcomes are my responsibility. I can attack this disease, not just attacking me. I can be proactive in my recovery and live in a way that promotes me getting back to the best place that I can. So I was dished out of the hospital, went into walking rehab. I did everything that I could do to try and get better. My daughter was born and I realised I want to be walking by the time she's walking and we'll be walking around together. And that power of why really anchored me further into the journey. Those mornings, I was in agony, I was stiff, it was challenging, and yet I decided I wasn't going to do what I felt, because I didn't feel like doing my exercises. But if I do, did what I felt, I my actions wouldn't be congruent to who I wanted to become, and therefore I'd end up feeling worse. So I decided to flip that and decided I would act based on who I wanted to become, which was me back on my feet, running around the garden with my children. So whenever I started to feel like I'm struggling, I simply said, is this helping or hindering you? Is this person you want to become? 
And that meant that I became consistent with my actions. I did my exercises, I did my stretches, and I did everything for my recovery because I was anchoring in to who I wanted to become. And then all of a sudden, I felt great. I wasn't lying to myself. I was doing what I wanted to become. I was being it instead of trying to have it without that. And that really, again, reinforced that spiral of doing this. It made me resilient on the days when I couldn't take any steps. And when it felt like my progress was going backwards, I just kept going. I had a big setback after six months when my lower lumbar vertebrae started to come back together. It wasn't walking properly. And yet I managed to come through that, go back into physio and bounce back again. And after 11 months, I walked a mile and ate it. I stood there by a lamppost. Felt like I was champion of the world. Hardly able to make my way back, but I, I was there. If I can do this, what else can I do? Pushed those boundaries and those limits. I tried to move towards my potential. And then a few weeks later, my daughter started walking and just realised, like, she'd come into the world with a few simple mechanisms to ensure that she stayed alive. She didn't have any society's expectations or grime on her. She didn't have years of negative self-talk in her backpack. She was just her, pure, the identity of whoever she was. And I thought, I need to do the same thing. Step in that shower, wash everything off. Just be me. And move forward and that kind of process just led me to really understand that it's so important to find out who you are to dig that bit deeper to really reflect and join together the dots that are there and start to listen to your body if you've got an amazing feedback system tells you everything you need to know if you're willing to listen and again that then sparked my next routine which was to become medication free which meant I spent years optimising my nutrition, my sleep and my movement. And two weeks ago, I took my last dose of medication and now I'm controlling it by lifestyle a lot. So, trying to make me cry. <laughs> no, I'm not going to let you make me cry. Um, that is a gorgeous story. A couple of things that stuck out to me and let me daughter And one of the reasons I'm doing this whole podcast series is that I think that a lot of us are losing and we are giving into what we think we should. And that should is the impossible expectation. So, I think a lot of us are leaving and giving into not, not, or not just kind of giving into the darkness. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I love talking to people is that. Not only is it a beautiful story, but I think it has a greater purpose of helping other people see that they can find the joy in life again. They can find something that I'm truly passionate about, even if it's 
not that you are nerd, but like for me, I feel like my passions are nerd. also important is that we have a defined idea of where we're going with our why. So I think the two together are very powerful. So how I kind of help my client capitalize this is why will fuel you on the journey. But the journey is where you think maybe or other people think you should go. So often you are traveling west at a fast rate of knots and why you actually want to be traveling east on your journey. Love that. But the further you hustle and the further you channel that why, the further away you move from where you truly want to be. So it's really about finding your why, also having that real deeper clarity on the things that resonate with you. And that don't require some element of reflecting on your past, removing the emotion from your failures and finding what actually happened. What are the thoughts connected to the interwoven threads with things that went right, things that went wrong, things are like, things are gone, the experience I've had, people that I've met. Because still let down. You'll start to see patterns emerging. That becomes a clue to your purpose and your mission. And then use those clues to fast forward into the future to your funeral. What do you want people to do? Family, friends, person down the street didn't know you, took the time to come to pay his And then forward a little bit more. Onto your deathbed. Because so many of us regret not being authentically ourselves. Don't regret what we did do. We always regret what we did. What are you going to regret that you didn't do? Your decision, your own expression, your own journey that you want to make. How far can you say that you should do that? That's my intent. That's what you should be doing. That's what you should do. Chisel out what you want to 
Hey guys, one thing before you go, at the end of every month, I'm planning to do a Q&A special answering all of your questions, either about what we just talked about or anything in between. I'm happy to hear back from you and help you out if I can. If you could do me a favor and go to thebeigehouse.com slash askmegan, you can leave your comment or your question. I'll be able to answer it on the next Q&A episode. Again, the address is thebeigehouse.com slash askmegan. Ask Megan is all one word. Thank you so much. I look forward to hearing from you.